Three-way movie gasm. Slumber time is coming soon. Rest your head upon my breast while mama hums a tune. The sandman is calling when shadows are falling while the soft breezes sigh as in days long gone by. Way down in Missouri. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Sasha Stone with Awards Daily. I'm here with Ryan Adams, also from Awards Daily, and Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com. This is Three Way Movie Gasm Podcast, our fifth episode. If you need to reach us by email, you can write to awardsdaily at gmail.com or you can reach Craig at Craig at livingincinema.com. And we are on Twitter as well. Um, Living in Cinema and Awards Daily are both on Twitter. Um, okay, so I think the first film we're going to talk about, we wanted to um, bring back some attention to Deborah Granick's uh, Winter's Bone. And Craig, take it away. Um, well, it's kind of timely that we do that this week because um, on Monday it uh, received three Gotham Award nominations. It was... Um, Best Feature, Best Ensemble, and Best Actress for the terrific Jennifer Lawrence. And the film is also coming out um, on DVD on Tuesday. We uh, highly recommend this movie. It's one of the best films of 2010, I think, by a mile. It's not even in the category of, but it was directed by a woman. I mean, it stands on its own as a great work. We think it's one of the best films of 2010. And I say that I have to make the condition that it's not just great because a woman directed it. And everybody always thinks, well, you have to pay more attention to the films that are directed by women because there are so few of them. But I really do think that Winter's Bone stands on its own as a very, very well-directed, well-written, well-acted film. And I think maybe because Deborah Granick does not have the high profile that Catherine Bigelow had, that we're not really, that's not being foisted upon people as, as much as it was last year. It's sort of, we, we people who know it, uh, accept it without uh, feeling like that they're being force-fed it. Right, right. It's just a matter of keeping it in the minds of... I mean, in, obviously I'm talking about the Oscars because I'm on mm-hmm. sort of a, a one-track with the Oscars, but I just mean that to, to keep it in the Oscar race, uh, it has to be fresh in, in voters' minds. And I think that once they sit down and actually watch the movie, uh, they'll be won over by it. Absolutely. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. I it was, These movies, some when they come out, uh, when they premiere at Sundance and then are released on, on platform gradually over the year, sometimes it takes a while for me to see them. And so I try to catch up ahead of time and, and read the book or read the screenplay if I get my hands on it. And so I did read the book and I, I was excited about it all year long and because I knew what, what I could see what the potential might be. But with Winter's Bone, the, the main um, complaint seems to be this idea of what did they call it? Poverty porn. Yeah, that's just, I don't know where this comes from. I mean, I'm, anything to do with anything is labeled some kind of porn now. And so that's like comment porn to me. Hmm. <laughs> I think anybody who would call it that hasn't actually seen the movie. They've maybe read the description and they see that it's about uh, an Ozark Mountain teen who has to save her house by finding her, her meth cooking father. Um, and so they just assume um, certain things about it. But the if you read the description of it, it sounds like one of those, you know, bleak American indies about poverty and people being miserable. But what really drives it is this um, 
this noir thriller of a story at its core. And um, it's actually an extremely entertaining movie on top of being a thoughtful one. I mean, the the Ozark setting is really just the, the background to it. It's not necessarily the point of the novel or of the film, but it, it gives it greater resonance. Well, that's a good point about the, the, the noir aspect, the, the genre of the movie itself. They call it country noir. Um, and any kind of movie to do with criminals or gangsters or crime, you're going to be dealing with the underclass. The noir well, yeah, so aspect, as far as poverty goes, poverty. you know, a lot, of, a lot of crime stories take place among disadvantaged um, economic situations. Gangsters and criminals are not rich people. So, you know, lots of, lots of crime stories take place in a, in a poverty-stricken situation, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I admired so much about um, Deb talking when I talked to Deborah Granick was because she she went into it knowing she knew nothing about it, and she went and researched it, and she talked to locals, and she spent time there, and she had people who lived there coming into her trailer and talking to her about it and saying, "No, that doesn't ring true. No, they would never do that." Or, "Yes, that that is more authentic." So she was careful about it. She didn't just dive right in and say, "Oh, I know this world." This is how mm -hmm. poor people act, you know. Right. Um, she she took the time, which very few directors do. A lot of them come at it, you know, with a lot of arrogance. But she's told me flat out, I had no idea. I'm, you know, I'm from the East Coast. Um, I went to a, you know, <laughs> she's very well educated. And, you know, she she's interested in stories about strong female characters. I mean, that's what drew her to this, to this film. And... Um, I think the thrust of the movie is much more about who Jennifer Lawrence is than in about it being so-called poverty porn. It's like that's the last thing they have to grab onto. It's like with Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> there was nothing else they could criticize about that movie, so it had to be poverty porn, you know. Um, what are they supposed to do, never tell a story about, you know, poor people ever when, you know, the majority of Americans are poor? So Well, and, and in terms of the story, it adds – it it adds to the drama because this is a character who's on the bottom rung of the economic ladder and she has nowhere the, going down is not an option and that's sort of what drives her character to take the chances that she takes and 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 risk her life and her family because she doesn't have a choice and she just does it and uh, it's ultimately kind of a it, it's it, it's a hopeful story because she's a character who does what she needs to do to to keep her family safe it's you know it started out the year as being one of the most well-reviewed films it was you know uh, considered called one of the best films of the year by uh, david edelstein and i think that on actually on cbs sunday morning but he also writes for um uh what does he write for david edelstein new york new york, magazine. new york magazine new york magazine and um I have a feeling that Winter's Bone is going to turn up on a lot of top 10 lists by the end of the year. I just see it as that way. It's kind of strange how as the year wraps up, even films that come out early that people think are, will be forgotten because they're good and they, you know, they hold their place and they still have resonance. Then they can, it can last through to the end of the year, you know, and it's always a big question as to whether they will or not. And you can always tell what movie is actually good and what movie is just being sold really hard. And Winter's Bone has both going for it, I think. Yeah, That's why the critics' it, um, awards are important, I think, because the critics have do have a, a long memory. They have a good, a better memory than audiences do, and better memory than perhaps um, 
academy members do who need to have everything given to them in the last three months before the nominations come out. Critics have a long memory of what has happened earlier in the year, and they also champion movies at their job. In this case, hopefully the cream will rise to the top because it only made, I think, $6 million over the about five months that it spent in theaters. I think it was, I can't remember the, the maximum number of screens that it played in, but it was a very limited release. It was a very um, low-budget independent film with a small distributor. So it can only really rely on its quality. It obviously doesn't have any big movie stars, although Jennifer Lawrence is pretty much well on her way. Um, so hopefully the critics will keep talking about it and it will keep it keep its name in front of uh, the Oscar voters. I don't know if I can I don't know if I can talk about the soundtrack in awards terms because oh no don't worry about awards I, I don't terms. know offhand if anything was written originally for the movie or if it if it has a chance at qualifying in that category. But the soundtrack was to me one of the key parts of the movie. But um, let me ask Ryan. I didn't actually read the novel, um, but I got a strong sense of the place and the characters from the movie, and I'm wondering how closely the movie stuck to the novel itself. Well, okay. I wasn't prepared for that, but I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, one thing that really stood out for me, and should be obvious from the title of the movie, Winter's Bone, the book, from beginning to end, every few pages, they emphasized the amount of snow that was on the ground. And it was dead. It was deep and dead of winter, and she had to trudge through the snow on her trek to ask questions of the various cousins and stuff and it was it was a, a lot the terrain and everything was a lot colder and um there's a, there's a the climax on the lake the lake is frozen over she has to cut through the ice and reach into the icy water that made a that made a big impression in the novel and i was i was when i saw that the movie wasn't wasn't filmed in the coldest part of winter and there was no snow on the ground. At first, it worried me a little bit that that was going to be missing. But but because the, I think it had to do maybe with the cinematography that was desaturated. It, it had a really chilly feel all the way through the movie anyway, in spite of the, in spite of the lack of snow. I guess it's a, it's a scheduling problem that they, or maybe a, a logistics problem that it was just too difficult to get up in the mountains when there was also much snow on the ground or a, a financial uh, consideration or something that they didn't film it when there was snow on the ground, but that was a big part of the novel is there was snow everywhere and icicles off the porch and everything. It, they just constantly talked about that in the novel. Did it um, in the novel? Did the did the did the weather add to the sort of hardship of the whole thing, or was it just a mood element? It did. It really did because uh, I mean she's desperate enough anyway. But when you're when you're when your family is, is destitute and it's a dead of winter and you can barely have enough um, fuel to keep the stove burning, that adds a whole another level of desperation to the situation and really made you, I guess possibly too, um, since you had to spend so much time outdoors going from hilltop to hilltop, you really appreciate the fact that their one little haven is their cabin and that they're in jeopardy of losing that. And what it's what would it be like to be out on the streets when there is not even a street to be out on, right? Um, do you think that the that the movie captured the flavor of the book? It did. You know, like I said, I was worried about that at first, but I was soon um, my 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 fears were were qualmed because um, I think that the cinematography is was the key to capturing the, the cold, chilly uh, feeling of the novel. The fact that they drained it of color and it was leached out, and there were just a lot of grays and blues and no uh, warm colors at all. That, that achieve the same effect. Hmm, that's nice. I like that. 
a good comparison. I mean, a good observation. Tempted and tried, we're off made to We talked a little bit before about the the location and how important the location was. Um, and to me, the Ozarks were almost a character in and of themselves in the film. Um, and part of that was the terrific music. There was original music that was composed by Dickon Hinchliffe, who was a member or was a member of Tindersticks, the um, rock band from Nottingham, England. Um, but also as a music consultant is a woman named Meredith Sisko, who is a, she's a journalist, she's an author, she's a storyteller, she's a musician and kind of a student of general folklore and sort of knowledgeable about Ozark history. Um, she was actually in the film. Um, there was a sequence um, where everyone had gathered for a party and there was a band playing and they're playing. I'm not a music expert, so I don't know if it's bluegrass or if it's old time or what the technical definition of it is, but it's, you know, banjo, fiddle, mandolin and um, vocals. Um, and the music just really gave it uh, a realistic, to me, to an outsider at least, a, a very realistic, um, authentic feel. And it also added to the whole stark um, tone of the film. It was, it was fantastic. I don't know if, with the, the music category is always so fussy with their stupid little rules and regulations. I don't know if, it, if any of it will qualify, but um, it would be a nice addition in that category for sure. I will say, though, about the music that uh, that's another thing that was different about the novel. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure that there was no banjo that figured prominently in the book, but there there is in the movie. You know, there, there's a, a significant uh, prop and plot device in the, in the in the movie is the banjo, her father's banjo. Okay, so the next movie we're going to talk about is 127 Hours. Um, it comes out on November 5th um, in limited release. It's um, a Danny Boyle film who you will remember from the pile of Oscars that were won by Slumdog Millionaire. Um, it stars James Franco. It tells the true story of Aaron Ralston, who you may remember um, a few years back um, was a hiker. He went up into the canyons of Utah and he had an accident and a, uh, a rock. He had an accident and a rock fell on his arm and he was trapped there. And um, so it's kind of a survival story. Uh, James Franco plays Ralston. He gives a terrific performance and the movie belongs almost entirely to him except for one, except for some flashbacks and one brief moment where he meets a couple of other hikers um, before he has his accident. Um, Viscerally, um, it was one of the more intense and entertaining movies that I've seen in a long time, certainly more intense than anything I've seen outside of a horror movie. There was definitely an emotional kick at the end, but um, I was left kind of wondering, maybe I was a little exhausted from the entire experience, um, wondering what else there was to take away from it besides this visceral, this visceral experience, and I'm wondering what you guys 
what you guys were left with um, from your experience. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the book, should we? Um, okay, since since I've only read the book, I'll say up front, uh, Sasha and Craig were able to see the movie at a screening, but I haven't seen it yet, so I, I crammed for this exam and I, I read the book, and I, have, I know the screenplay too, so I can talk about it from that aspect. I'm glad um, you have because um, one of the things that I had, one of the things that I was thinking as I was watching it was how much of the story was true how much of it they the filmmakers if any how much of it if anything the filmmakers invented and how much of it um stuck closely to the book so i'm wondering since you read both the screenplay and the book if you can compare it in those terms mm. i would say that the only thing that they really embellished very much and it, they, it was a really good and interesting choice narratively he did meet um megan and christy the two hikers on the trail but the way he relates the, the their meeting in the book, it's very brief, and they they part ways before after just a very short time on two different trails, and they don't go with him to the famous scene that we see in the trailer where they dropped in into the underground um, pool. They don't they don't do that in the book. They 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 don't stick together long enough to have much of a much of a connection with each other. But by by letting him spend more time with them in the movie, he gets to talk to them more, and so you learn more about him because if he's left all by himself all through the movie, he, he can't really talk to himself through the movie too much, right? And so there's no, we don't get to know him that way. But by giving him somebody to play off of in the beginning of the movie, these two girls, we, we find out about, not only we find out about his past, we find out about also his, his, his pleasure in, in being out in hiking on the, on his own in the wilderness and what he's gotten out of it his whole life that that it would be hard to to describe all that if he didn't have anybody to um to interact with that's interesting because um one of the things that I took away from it besides the the obvious message about the power of the human spirit and ability to overcome obstacles was the sense that um that we're here on this planet and we can't really we, we can't really do it alone we really need you know, the input and help of other people. Mm -hmm. um, and that seemed to be sort of a, a lesson that the character needed to learn. But by but, but through his interactions with those two girls, it seemed to sort of defuse that message a little bit because he seemed like a very outgoing, sociable, relatable. He, when he meets them in, in, the, in the story that he tells in the book, he meets them. He does invite them to come along with him to the pool they decline. They want to go. They have other things in mind. They invite him to come along with them. They have they have an itinerary and a map that they are are already planning to follow, and they want him to come along. But they they're both independent. I mean, the two groups of the girls and he are, are independent, and and I think that that's a quality of the people who who are hikers and wilderness explorers anyway. Is, is you kind of like to be away from everybody. And right. was but he, he does spend a lot of the book regretting that he didn't spend at least more time with them, that he was going to let them know where he was going, because he that would have been obviously helpful if he had told more people where he was going. Yeah, it kind of would have been. But I think that by the time, I mean, they just went off to their party. He didn't it didn't seem like he they would have even noticed that he was missing. They just would have thought he didn't show up, you know. Right. Well, they do. Yeah, they, they, he does say that in the book too. I'm sorry, I just oh. blah blah blah. I mumbled there. He does say that in the book too that they they had made arrangements to meet at the party later, and he realizes that that he it was no nothing definite. It was no promise, and they wouldn't have noticed if he didn't show up. That's that's right. Um, he.
I don't think they ever would have noticed. The only people who would have noticed would be his parents. And I think that's why it's smart for, for the character in the film that he that he really does talk more about, you know, he sees his future and he remembers and appreciates his parents who he totally took for granted, you know. It's, it's, it's both remembering them because they're the ones who are going to miss him. And also, I think as you're dying, you do kind of slip into a primal, primal state of... Uh, Especially with sleep deprivation, because he couldn't get any sleep. He was standing up. He couldn't. He couldn't find any position where he could relax. He's sleep deprived, and he's also dehydrated. Yeah. All of those things contribute to his uh, sort of heightened sense of. Uh, it's almost like a trance state that that that. Of need, you know, yeah. like he he mm -hmm. needs his mom, or his dad. You know, he needs them, and. Uh, I don't know. It's an. In, it's an. It Did was, I cut away? I didn't. I, I. I'll say that I skipped part of the middle of the screenplay because I don't. I wanted to save some of the pleasure of the movie for the movie itself. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be so familiar with it that nothing would come as a surprise to me. So I skipped a big section of the middle of the screenplay. Do they cut away very much to the search efforts going on back home, or do they stick with him pretty much all the time in the canyon? They never None. ever show. Yeah. yeah, you don't ever see their their people searching for him or looking. You yeah. you get the idea that. He has to cut off his arm, or he's that's that. You know, he will be. In found. the book, they do though. In the, the alternate chapters for the first uh, seventy-five percent of the book, they keep cutting back and forth, chapter to chapter, showing what's going on back home. People beginning to wonder why he's not showing up at work. His mother going to search his email account, trying to find any clues in his email messages. There's a lot of stuff going on as they begin to realize that this is uncharacteristic of him not to show up for work and things like that. And it kind of I understand that he wanted to give a, he, all of those details because he wanted to show, for one thing, how much people cared about him and how, how much the effort was being put forth to find him. But he also, but I think it diminished the, the impact of the story a little bit because, like you said, there's really something to see him totally isolated by himself and only being able to depend on himself to extricate himself literally from the situation. That's the thing is I think the filmmakers definitely were trying to emphasize that sense of isolation. There was a moment when he, um, right after he's first trapped um, where the camera's in close on him. And I don't know if they did it with computers or what they did, but they pulled back and they kept pulling back and back and back. And you, you um, first see the canyon that he's trapped in and then you start to see the landscape around the canyon that he's trapped in. And it pulls way back so that you see the entire um, the entire Utah countryside, and it's just it's nowhere. And and in the in the canyon that he in, is in is now this little crack on the screen, and it's kind of um, it's it's almost jaw dropping. But that from that point on, they do everything they can to sort of um, emphasize his isolation. So it doesn't surprise me that they, except for his flashbacks and little thoughts that he's having of of people in the outside world, there's no reference to what's going on um, in terms of searching for him or anything until the very end. Can I just mention too, that I, I think that uh, I noticed when I, when I looked at the script that it's very short for a script. Most screenplays are 120, 130 pages long. This screenplay is like 83 pages long. And I believe I read maybe on your Twitter page or something, Craig, you said that it was the most uh, um, tense or stressful 90 minutes you spend in the theater. So the movie is pretty short, right? It's like a 90 minute movie. Is that correct? Yeah, it's um, they do not mess around. I mean, it takes about 25 minutes of setup until he gets trapped, and then the rest of the movie um, is about um, um, a little a little bit more than an hour of him being trapped, and then 
So, but he does spend most of the first, say, twenty-five or twenty twenty minutes of the movie uh, when he's run when he when he's met those girls, right? When he's met Megan and Christy, he does spend at least like fifteen or twenty minutes with them in the movie, right? I looked at my watch at the point where the rock fell on him, and it was twenty-five minutes in. So, and I and and more than half of that was probably spent with the girls. There was maybe ten minutes of of setup of him getting ready to go on this trip and then driving out there. And I would just like to go back to that. Then I just I know that people sometimes can be really sticklers, and they and then we have people on the side who complain if if a movie strays too far from reality, if they if they tamper with the story too much. I will say that in reality, he did spend easily 15 or 20 minutes with those girls. It's not as if they, they invented a, a whole chain of events that didn't occur. He, he spent a lot of time with those girls, enough so that uh, he knew their names, they knew him, and they remembered him later and everything. They wondered about him when he didn't show up at the party. Um, the only thing that was different in the movie is that he, they didn't go with him to the underground pool. And I think that that was a really nice touch, though, for the movie, because it reminds everybody of the joy of life and the joy of, of inner of human interaction. And that's, that comes back to the point that you were saying. Uh, if you don't get a taste of that, if you don't have a taste of the pleasures of the flesh, when you realize you're not going to, you're going to, you're not going to appreciate how much he's about to lose with his arm and how much he could lose with his, by losing his life. Well, do they have the masturbation scene in the book? Please, <laughs> you're making Sorry. this up. No. Sasha goes right for the masturbation scene. <laughs> I got to go for the money shot. No, um, no, he, he, well, I mean, you know, you're talking about um, life's essentials, right? So you're talking yeah. about, is this the last time I'm ever going to, you know, have an orgasm, I guess. Um, Franco has actually apparently been quite open about that scene. He doesn't do it. Um, I kept thinking, no, preserve your bodily fluids. I mean, every time he, you know. Did anything like cry or you know you just you don't realize how much water you're losing all the time and so I was glad he didn't end up <laughs> going through with it. How did they but, handle that in the movie? Well, he contemplates it because he's looking back at a picture of um, the girl in the cave, cave, uh -huh. you know, and, and uh, how pretty she was, and you know, it just really drove home the point of missed, of potentially missed opportunities and all the beautiful things that life really has to offer that you're about to uh, mm -hmm. lose. I thought it was a great moment and totally honest, frankly. I mean, a very human moment. Very human. If you're thinking about this is the last time ever for anything, you know, really. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he, it looked like he was kind of going. Well, I have to say, I hesitate to even get into this because, like I said, I know that people really complain sometimes if they think that a, that a movie veers too far from the events of that actually happened in a true story. But that's not in the book. He didn't masturbate in the book. There's nothing like that. <laughs> well, he doesn't masturbate. He, he almost uh, But he thinks about it, though. I mean, he does, and he does think about it, and that's something that's on his mind. Is that, I, uh, I yeah, but can I just... I like, I want to change. I need to t to say something important here, and that is that okay. I'm just so tired of this whole, you know, is it the real story or not? Um, because of the simple reason that if you're a filmmaker, an artist, your job isn't to tell that story, fact factually. Your job right. is mm -hmm. to take the story, um, and make it bigger, you know, to and relatable to to an audience. You know what I mean? So it's like I don't know why people are complaining about the social network and then 127 hours and then probably they'll complain about the king's speech too you know mm -hmm. um 
Well, they complained about a beautiful mind. It's every time right. that there's a there's a biogra- biographical movie, they complain about any any time that it strays away from the facts. It is. I think it really is. I mean, um, but it's 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 brought into sharper focus in the movie, and that's one of the things I want to say about the screenplay and the novel. Simon Bofoy, who also adapted um, *Slumdog Millionaire* from a novel last year, um, has done a really masterful job when you take a book like this and you're able to see the movie in, in it and carve away everything that's not the movie and distill it down to the essence of what it seems like the screenplay, well, I know the screenplay is and what it seems like you guys say the movie is, that's a really fantastic skill to have, and he's done a great job. Um, everything that, when I was reading the book, that I was a little bit impatient to get through because I was trying to read it in just a, a day and a half so I could have some, so I'd be prepared for the podcast with you guys. I was impatient to plow, to plow through it, and everything that, that I was impatient with in the book disappears in the screenplay. So there all, all the right choices were made. In fact, like at the end, uh, after he's rescued, there's another 50 or 60 pages in the book after he's rescued. He goes through his hospital recovery, the surgeries he had to go through, the different uh, adventures that he went on after he recovered, what eventually happens to him and with his family and, and his life afterwards. And I think that's condensed to about 10 minutes in the movie, right? After he's rescued, the movie wraps up pretty fast. Right. And, it, and that's the way it should be. I mean, I can understand why it's in the book and it belongs in a book because a book is a format that, that can handle that. But in the movie, you've got to get rid of that stuff. After when, when the, at the end of the climax, the movie has to end. Yeah, I felt that um, Danny Boyle just had such a strong grasp on the story. He really mm-hmm. doesn't ever lose it, I don't think. Um, despite the silly commenters that I've read that say things like, you know, um, this part went on too long in the middle and, you know... Um, yeah, like this movie in particular, talking about 127 hours? Yeah, some people, believe it or not, there are people who are saying that. And But I, I felt like, and, and I suppose it can be a valid criticism if they feel like the middle part was too long. But I, I felt like he had um, a, you know, a very clear idea of what he wanted to do, what he wanted to say, and how he wanted to say it. And um, he, to me, he executes it perfectly. And I was with him every every frame of that film up until the end and he held me in his thrall that whole time Danny Boyle did much more so for me than Slumdog Millionaire which I also really liked but it was just kind of too all over the place that movie and too easy too cliched in a lot of it Um, you fall for it because you love these characters but in this movie it was sort of like it reminded me of um, Train Spotting and Shallow Grave um, even even the uh, the zombie movie, <laughs> 28 Days Later. All right, so the next movie we're going to talk about is Animal Kingdom. Um, it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. Um, it, it won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize and has gotten excellent reviews. Um, it opened in the States in August. Um, didn't do a lot of business. It's made less than a million dollars. Um, but it's notable um, from an Oscar standpoint because um, uh, Sony, Sony Pictures Classics, it was one of the first um, screener DVDs to be sent out to the Academy. So um, it kind of popped up on people's radar. But um, it tells the story. It's based on a true story. It tells the story of, um, of a teenager whose mother dies and he goes to live with his grandmother and her three sons. Um, 
and it turns out that they're kind of a criminal, a, a mid-level criminal family, like robbery and drug dealing and stuff like that. Um, and the kid kind of gets stuck between the police investigation of the family and the family itself. And at first he's embraced as a member of the family, but after a while they begin to not trust him because he's technically an outsider, sort of being one step removed from the core of the family. And um, boy, this is going terribly. That's okay. The police are really corrupt too. We should mention that the Melbourne, it takes place in Melbourne, Australia, and they depict the police uh, department as being just as corrupt as the criminals. And But there is one good detective played by Guy Pierce, and he spots this teenage son who's moved into the family. They've had this family under surveillance for a long time. They, they're, they're under a lot of pressure, a lot of heat, because there's been a, a murder committed. Uh, some police officers have been killed. And so the detective sees a, wink, a weak link in the family with this uh, teenage son that's moved in. And, and so it's like a, the movie's basically a battle for this kid's soul between the detective trying to get him to come to the, 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 the light side, the right side, and, the, and his uh, gangster uncles trying to draw him deeper and deeper into, into the family business. And they do that um, by trying to implicate him in, in some, some crimes involving him in his personal life. And, uh, right, but that makes him extremely vulnerable. He becomes vulnerable to the police and also vulnerable to his own family, and he winds up being in, in great danger. So his uncles are trying to draw him deeper and deeper into the family business, while the, uh, the one good police officer thinks that they can pull him to the, to the right side. And meanwhile, his grandmother, who seems uh, a little bit, um, we don't realize at first that his grandmother is, is really so bad. You think that maybe she's just providing a, a roof over the heads and providing meals for her for her rotten kids. But it turns out that she's probably the most evil character in the entire movie. And that's saying something because there are some real crazy maniac sociopaths in, in this movie, yeah. uh, criminals and cops alike. The, uh, the movie's based uh, around a true incident that, I think it took place in 1988 in Melbourne, Australia, where a couple of young police officers were killed. This really happened, and it happens in the movie, too. And this true-life crime, crime, crime family, the uh, Pettingill family, um, this mother had six sons, and they were all criminals. They're murderers, armed robbers, drug dealers. Uh, and two of her sons were implicated in the murder of these two policemen, but they were... Um, prosecuted but exonerated under really fishy circumstances. And so that also parallels what happens in the movie. <laughs> and, okay, bye. <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> oh, God. That's all I had to say. <laughs> I was just pausing Goodbye. to make sure that you were done. I didn't want to step on you. <laughs> it's hard to tell, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes it's like one movie in the past four weeks, I've really known what I'm talking about. You can't shut me up. No, that's not it. No, no, it was just. I think we just zoned out. Craig zoned out. That was I part of it. it. Like I said, I was trying not to. I was trying not to walk on you. I figured we could edit out the pause and afterwards. I was sitting back in my chair and waiting, you know, to the to the appropriate moment to lean forward and talk. So. Just don't ask me what I think about Animal <laughs> Kingdom or ask me about the plot. <laughs> now, now, Ryan, can you tell us about the plot? <laughs> uh, no, you, so did a, you did a good job of he laying it out without job. telling too much. It was only like two minutes. I mean, it wasn't even that long. <laughs> it was like <laughs> two minutes in podcaster. <laughs> so for, at 11 o'clock, it's enough to put you guys to sleep, though. <laughs> It's only no. 8 o'clock It's here. like a bedtime story. 
<laughs> One give us nightmares. Stop! I won't be able to concentrate. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so I think it's it's probably fair to say that the main reason this movie is being talked about is the lead performance, uh, not the lead performance, but the um, supporting performance by Jackie Weaver as the grandmother who who isn't creepy enough, so they have to have her go by the name Smurf. What do you guys think her chances are for such a small film? I mean, Sony Pictures Classics knows a thing or two about winning Oscars. They got the best foreign picture last year. Um, but well, the thing is, you know, she, it, like you said, it, she probably will be uh, pushed for supporting. And it's an ensemble movie, though. And in an ensemble movie like this, um, everybody's just supporting. There's really no lead, even though right. probably the teenage son is the protagonist that we're supposed to be rooting for. He's his part in the movie. It's not any lar- bigger than anybody else. So it's the type of uh, supporting role that dominates the movie. And it dominates the movie also because we just haven't seen a character like this. I'm, I've been trying to think of another crime family matriarch, and there there really aren't any. Maybe... Maybe the mother and uh, uh, Angelica Houston and Grifters that comes a little a little close, but oh uh, yeah, good call. Yeah, I think it's a. I think they're doing a heavy ad campaign for it, so I think that that will help a lot just to to keep it in people's minds. I'm surprised by how well a contender can do if it just means it's about having their name on the list of all the Oscar predicting. Because mm-hmm. I really do think that, you know, this might be so, sort of semi-controversial. But I don't. I've never thought that the all of the Academy members watch all of the movies, but they don't want to. They don't know who to put down. So if they haven't seen all the movies, they put down either the people they like and they've seen, or the people they've heard about as being the best of the year. So if they've heard about Jackie Weaver, um, I mean, check yourself. Would you ever do that if you were filling out a ballot and you you knew you hadn't seen everything, but they were saying who's the be- who are the best five supporting actresses? Um, of the year would you I'll admit down- I did it last year with Sandra Bullock you know I didn't see that movie for a long time but I was already saying that I was already going along with what everybody else was saying it was seemed inevitable that she was going to get best best actress but I didn't see that movie for quite a while until after everybody else did but and I so mean I- even if you were putting down what you you know if even if you were voting as opposed to predicting would you still put only the ones you'd seen or would you put down the ones that for instance let's say we were doing best actor um, and you had to put down the five the performances you thought were the best well even if you hadn't seen the king's speech there's a pretty good chance you're going to put colin um colin firth on your ballot right you're not going to go oh i didn't see that movie so he's not going to be be my one of my five best actor performances you're probably I think there are people who do that in order to put myself in this hypothetical situation i would have to ask myself am i ernest borgnine or am i sean penn who am I? Like, what kind of Academy voter am I? If I'm one of the one of the uh, one of the older people who really doesn't get around to seeing so much, maybe even one of the uh, Academy members who gets some help with their ballot by asking a, a grandchild or something to help them out, or even a personal assistant or somebody, that might happen. But <laughs> sorry, but what? But nothing. <laughs> no, that's probably not. I don't even use any of that because that sounds really. That's really judgmental, and especially when I use specific names. I hate to always picking, picking on poor on Ernest Borgnine. I'm picking on him all the time. I love that though. I mean, it's he deserves it. <laughs> but you I know. think even if you want to give the voters the benefit of a doubt, um, there's the thought that they're more likely to watch things that they keep hearing about. So if we keep hammering away at the name Jackie Weaver, maybe if any of them are listening, say, hey, 
those uh, moviegasm types seem to know what they're talking about. Maybe we should put this yeah. DVD in our player. So. And then there's another thing, too. It's, it's not as if maybe they don't watch the movie at all, but they might watch 15 minutes of it, or they might watch the first half of it, just enough to confirm what they've been hearing. But, but, they, but, but as Greg won't. said, they will, be, they will be inclined to watch a few minutes of it where otherwise they might not have if they've heard a lot of buzz for this person. Well, when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, no way is she going to get in. This isn't a great performance. You know, I had no idea it was going to turn the way it does toward the end where she just gets That's really, true. really evil. So if they don't watch it all the way through, they're not. I don't think they're going to they're going to go for it. It's a pretty That's weak true. category this year, though. So anything can happen. <clears throat> and I, I think it's the gradual transformation that makes it so great i mean the first time we encounter her is the, the the kid has just discovered his dead mother and the only person he can think of calling is his grandmother who he doesn't have a really close relationship with but he's kind of in shock and she's kind of this warm comforting voice um on the other end of the phone and that's your sort of your introduction to her you and can see when, that they're that the, the two sides of the family are estranged. That that she hasn't heard from him for a long time, and you almost suspect that the reason that he's an outcast and his mother's an outcast is maybe because that they're the bad side of the family because she's a heroin addict, and she right. she shows up and gives them with you know hugs and and like like I said all the all this warmth, and you don't find out until later that it's really the the reason that his he and his mother have split off from the family family is because they're afraid of the rest of them. Well, and you get the sense, too, as the thing progresses, that it's only when he becomes somebody that can't be trusted and who is a direct threat to her family that she kind of turns on him. Um, up to that point, she's actually pretty supportive of him, but it's it's when he becomes a liability that she readjusts her priorities and becomes the mama cub of the, or the, the mother of the, the, the lioness mother of this family of cubs. Um, there's a quote on... Uh... Well, I found it on Wikipedia. Where else? But there's a quote from the Melbourne police. They call the Pettingill family a nest of vipers. Hmm. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to go down the rabbit hole on that story, I think. It's fascinating. It's like the chicken ranch. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> Along those same lines. But you uh, know what's surprising about Animal Kingdom is I thought it was good enough to be one of those movies that kind of, you know, carry, the buzz carries it through to at least a screenplay nomination. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, the movie that you liked, Ryan, what was that again? Um, with Colin Farrell. Um, oh, yeah, In Bruges. In, In Bruges. Bruges. That was a big, you know, kind of a surprise screenplay nomination, even though you kind of predicted it. And then... Um, well, I wasn't alone, but but uh, I, I, yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that, that happened. But uh, I think that same situation, not, not enough people saw it. And yeah, and in the loop, same thing. Even though in the loop had a lot of advocating uh, going on, and I wonder if, I wonder if in Bruges also had that, and then therefore Animal Kingdom would really need that to get in for any reason uh, other than. I think Jackie the screenplay Rowe. is worthy, don't you? I think it's one of the best screenplays of the year. But um, we, I'm, I'm really proud of us into, into talking about the plot that we haven't spilled anything. We haven't, we haven't really given away any big spoilers because of the movies. Just spoiler after, it's just a twist and turn after twist and turn. There's all kinds of shocks. Probably one of the most brutal, surprising shocks in a movie that I've seen all year is an animal kingdom. Mm. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Right. And, um, the, the writer-director, David Michaud, uh, it's his first feature, the first movie that he's ever written and directed. Uh, he, I think he said he spent eight years uh, polishing the script. To me, as a debut, it's as strong as Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. 
that's how impressed I am with it. I think the screenplays, besides the performance, um, the main performance that we've been talking about, the screenplay is probably the strongest part. And one of the things that I liked about it um, is that, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm a little tired of these these crime movies. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Gamora last year that everybody was so crazy about. I even struggled a little bit with A Prophet the first time that I saw it. I'm just having a hard time. Um, warming up to these movies that seem to be intent on showing us how horrible a life of crime is. Mm-hmm. Um, but Animal Kingdom sort of took the smart tack by by having our entry into this world as relatively innocent kid. He wasn't a perfect kid, but he was relatively innocent. And it sort of and to have him imperiled and, and to identify with him, it made it a much stronger movie. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing for me too, I did. Uh, I had heard vaguely that it was based on a true incident, and so I went to try to find out what that was. And in the process, I found out something about the movie that always excites me about any movie is when it shows me, tells me something I, that I never knew about before. And it turns out, I'm sure this is a familiar fact to people who live in Australia and especially who live in Melbourne, but there's been gang war happening in Melbourne, Australia since the mid-80s, and especially from 1998 until until now, until 2010, there have been 36 gangland killings in Melbourne, Australia, and the wow. police are notoriously corrupt there. So this is all, uh, it's a its a den of iniquity there. It's not something you think about when you think of Australia. You think more no. of a laid-back, casual, good-time kind of place. Right. <laughs> Turns out they're just all crooks. Crooks and like, you know, cro- crocodile hunters. <laughs> and what? Crocodile hunters. Croc- <laughs> crocodile hunters. <laughs> what was that guy? The Oh, never mind. That's stupid. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's a sad story. <laughs> I'll cut that out. <laughs> no, a sad story is somebody randomly being eaten by a crocodile. A dude whose job is hanging out with crocodiles, getting eaten by a crocodile. That's not a sad story. That's just stupidity. <laughs> Oh, Sorry, God. Australian guy. <laughs> Sorry. We just all Australian fans too. All, all the Australian <laughs> readers awards daily never come back. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. No, I'm I'm sorry about that. I also apologize. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> okay. So that concludes uh, episode five of our three-way movie gasm podcast and please join us next week we'll have a lot more topics to discuss uh right guys (laughs) absolutely oh i cannot pull it together i think i'm just i'm just like loopy at this point i'm really i know that's uh yeah this is kind of late to be doing this it's okay for me because i'm i'm up really late anyway but i know that it's it's got to be getting late for you guys no it's only 8 15 here it just uh i don't know what your excuse is (laughs) Or a couple of flakes. <laughs> well, you've had well, a long day. I, I do know too, because you know you've got this. You've got a job. You guys have jobs and kids and stuff that I don't have. So no, we're just a couple of flakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Those are oh. just our excuses. Well, we did better with it this time than we did. I think so. Uh, for yeah. Animal Kingdom specifically, I think. I mean, well, we knew what we were talking about this time. We got into it last time, and we didn't. We couldn't even have. We didn't have the plot straight or anything. We didn't know. We didn't even know how many sons yeah. she had or what. You know, I it was know. A mess. It was, no, this was much better. Yeah, I mean, I 
I was tempted to just redo the whole podcast this way, but um, but I don't want to lose everything that we have. And I think we made the right decision to just tack this on at the end. Yeah. Good. So let me get to it, guys, because otherwise I'll never finish tonight. Okay, so, and I really want to okay, get it done and posted. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> this no, is so fun. I really I'm enjoy sorry. it talking to you guys. It's fun. Oh, it's here, but I can't. I can't compose myself. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. That's um, all right. And on that note, we conclude our fifth episode of Three-Way Moviegasm with Sasha Stone from Awards Daily, uh, Craig Kennedy from Living in Cinema, and Ryan Adams, also from Awards Daily. You can reach us, awardsdaily at gmail.com or craig at livingincinema.com. We're also on Twitter, Awards Daily, and Living in Cinema. (laughs) 